G'day and welcome to this very special 18-week podcast series, Ministry Memories, in honor of our 18th anniversary this year at Bayside Church. We've gone through the old archives and had a look at some of the fantastic guest speakers and ministers that we've had the privilege of hosting here in our pulpit over the years. We thought it'd be a great idea to revisit and remind and refresh our memory on some of the timeless truths that those ministries have brought through. Enjoy. I'm going to preach what I'm doing, speaking on today is because it's helping the Word of God touch places and relationships in ways that maybe you'd never thought they should or could. And so today I want to talk to you, to share a message with you that I call resolving the parental paradox. And it has wide application for relationships in life, as you'll hear. But I call the message resolving the parental paradox because it sounds really intelligent. And you don't know what that means, and so I feel like I'm at least in front from the beginning. Let me, what, what do you mean by a parental paradox, Al? Well, let, let me start by perhaps giving you an illustration in the Bible of a parental paradox. How many people have ever heard about Noah? Put your hand up if you've heard about Noah. And if you sit there and you've heard about Noah and you won't put your hand up, I'll come to your house. Let me ask the question again. Put your hand up if you've heard about Noah. Now, why do I want you to do that? The great danger is you come to church passive and stay passive. Christianity demands responsiveness continually. And one of the reasons I do that is not simply because I want to see how many hands there are. I want to give you an opportunity to get beyond passiveness and actually engage. And and by moving your body, you do that. That's what worship is about as well. By moving your body, by lifting your hands, you engage in something. And church is a dangerous place for passivity. Noah, you've heard about Noah. Noah is an interesting man because at the end of his life, everybody else was dead. Um, Except for his wife, his three sons and their daughters. And their their wives. Eight people survived the flood. And Noah was the reason they did. Now, how come Noah and his household got chosen out of all the other households? What was so special about Noah? Well, read your Bible. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, listen to what the Bible says about Noah. Now, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a good man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Well, that's a CV I wouldn't mind having attached to me as well. Al is a good man, um, righteous amongst the people of his time, and he walked with God. Obviously, there weren't that many good men around in Noah's day. But how fortunate for Ham, Shem, and Japheth that their daddy was a good man. Eh? Isn't that good? Wouldn't you love to have grown up in his house? Because if you were in someone else's house, you would have been pretty dead. These boys must have been so, must have been wonderful to have Noah for a dad because he caused them to have an opportunity to live. However, there's another question, and that is that just a few chapters down the line, you discover that these three very fortunate sons Um, encounter an unexpected difficulty. One of them ends up cursed. Now, why would that be in a a family where dad is such a good man? 
And dad is such a good uh, spiritual leader. His wife's alive. His kids are alive. Their wives are alive. And everyone else is dead. And yet one of those boys ends up cursed. Now, now why would that be? Well, read your Bible. Genesis chapter 9 unpacks the reason why one of uh, Noah's boys ended up cursed. It starts in verse 20. Now, Noah was a man of the soil. And he proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. Oh, hey boys, you know, dad's lying around in the nutty. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. They walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Well, how come poor old Ham ended up cursed? Because his daddy was a bad man. You see, it's a bad man that drinks so much he doesn't know whether his clothes are on or off. And that's a paradox. To have a dad that is such a good man that the only reason you're alive is because of him. And then you end up cursed and you're cursed because your daddy's a bad man as well. You see, here's the problem with parents. They do you good and they cause you problems. And this man was such a righteous man. It's the only reason his families were alive. But but he was sufficiently broken and defective to go through a moment of such drunkenness that he presented one of his boys with a challenge he didn't handle well. But notice this. Who paid the price? It was the son who paid the price. It was the boy who ended up cursed. And that's a paradox, that your dad can be so good that you've been blessed because of him, but your dad was defective and so you ended up cursed because of him. But you've, you've, got to, you've got to understand this. The paradox is something the children have to learn to manage, not just the parents. And this parental paradox is a concept that you'll find sprinkled throughout the Bible. And because you and I are going to find ourselves so often in life relating to leaders and authority figures who are not perfect, you better figure out how to manage that paradox because it'll be you that pays the price if you don't handle it appropriately. You see it again in uh, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel has a major theme, and the major theme is David and his development as a king. But it has a subplot, and the parental paradox is part of the subplot of 2 Samuel. In chapter 1, we meet a really good man. We meet a man who is so good that he will become the plumb line king for Israel throughout history. All the kings of Israel get held up against David as their pattern. And in chapter 1, you see why. He discovers that Saul and Jonathan have been killed on the field of battle and instead of dancing on their grave, he writes a passionate lament. How are the mighty fallen? And he grieves over the death of his of his greatest enemy in life, King Saul. He grieves for him. In chapter 2, 
All of Judah come to David and say, you're such a good man, we want you to be our king. And so David begins his ascendancy. In chapter 3, David starts a family. A little different than the average family because he's got six wives. But his wives start popping out sons like peas, one after another. So David ends up with six firstborn sons. His his eldest son is called Amnon, and the third of these firstborn sons is Absalom. And these boys are growing up in the house of a really, really good man, real real man of God. In chapter 4, all opposition to David ends. In chapter 5, David not only gets crowned king of Israel, but he he captures Jerusalem for the first time. He gets those Jebusites out of that last stronghold. And in chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and establishes worship there for the first time. In chapter 7, God comes to David and says, Davy, you're such a good man. I'm going to make a promise to you, mate. There is going to be a king on the throne of Israel that comes from your family line for all of history. You're such a good man. In chapter 8, David has one victory after another and these boys are growing up in the house of a national hero. In chapter 9, he discovers that Jonathan's son is still alive and instead of killing the young lad to, to kind of clear uh, all of the contenders to the throne, he brings him to his table and treats him with compassion and kindness for the sake of his friendship with Jonathan. And in chapter 10, David defeats the Amorites. Is there nothing this good man cannot do? Chapter 11, Davy's home one night, notices the neighbour's wife taking a bath. Very interesting. She looks lonely. Invites her over for a game of chess. (coughs) Turns into a very vigorous game of chess. She ends up pregnant. What do you do when you get the neighbour's wife pregnant? You bring the husband home from the war so he'll sleep with his wife and no one will know whose kid this really is. But this is a man so loyal. He will not spend a single night with his wife when men who are are under his leadership are risking their life on the field of battle. He sleeps on David's doorstep. How do you repay a man for that kind of character and loyalty? You set him up on the battlefield to be murdered. And you'd have to say that adultery and murder is not a good day in the office for an average man. Chapter 12, Nathan comes to David and puts his bony prophetic finger right in his face and says, mate, you are a bad man. Adultery and murder. It's fascinating how David's stumbling has implications for family life because in chapter 13, David's eldest son, Amnon, gets the hots for his half-sister Tamar invites her to his house and rapes the girl. But she's got a big brother. His name is Absalom. And Absalom is not a wimp. He's willing to fight. But he waits for daddy to set things in order. But it's very difficult for daddy to discipline an elder son for, for rape when he has just been publicly exposed as an adulterer and a murderer himself. Daddy does nothing. That's a paradox. A man who is a great leader, who is bringing an entire nation together, can't even manage a crisis in his own home. And partly because he's such a good man and he's such a bad man. Well, Absalom, uh, he, he waits for a couple of years for dad to act 
And when he doesn't, he sets up his brother and settles the score himself and murders his eldest brother and skips town waiting for a telephone call, an angry call to come from dad. The phone call never comes. He waits for three years for some kind of contact from dad, doesn't come. So he agitates amongst dad's friends for an opportunity to come back to Jerusalem. And his father relents and lets him come back to Jerusalem. He waits two more years for a phone call that doesn't come. And finally, after five years of waiting, he gets so angry, he starts burning things down. And finally, Dad and Absalom have that conversation they should have had seven years earlier. But you see, by now, Dad's inconsistencies have bred rebellion in a son's heart. And before you know it, you get to chapter 15 and there's a boy standing in the gates of the city saying, would that I was king in Israel. I tell you what, I'd sort a few things out around here if it was me that had the crown upon his head. By chapter 16 and 17, an entire nation is at war. And in chapter 18, there's a boy uh, hanging from a tree by his hair with three javelins sticking out of his chest and a daddy in an upper stairs room bawling his eyes out. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I could have died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's a paradox that a man can be so gifted and so competent in his leadership that he can be a national symbol for generations and so incompetent that he's got two dead sons and a broken heart. What an extraordinary thing. Did you notice that it wasn't David, however, who paid the ultimate price for his own paradoxical behavior? It was his sons. The father was a paradox. It was the sons who had to handle that better than they did. And because they didn't manage well the paradoxical behavior of their own dad, it was them who died. It was the kids And this is why everybody needs to hear this because, you see, the the reality is that everywhere you go, parents are paradoxical. I'm a paradox to my own kids. I bring blessing into their life and I face them with challenges nobody else will. And it's them, my children have to learn to handle my paradoxical behavior. You have to learn to handle the paradoxical behavior of the household in which you grew up. And if you don't, it'll eat your lunch. See, the reality is this. God has made us extraordinarily uh, relationship-learning little computers. I mean, the, the good things in your family life have marked you, and the inadequacies in your family life have marked you too, and often way more profoundly than you will ever imagine. Uh, right here in this church Fairly soon, they're going to be running one of the programs we've developed called Woman to Woman. One of its main aims is to help women appreciate what growing up in their family of origin has done in marking them. Because if you don't understand it, you will repeat it. Even if you say, oh, I'll never do that when I grow up. Oh, yes, you will. Because you see, you were designed by God to draw precisely into your heart the fabric of the family in which you were created. Have you ever noticed the way children learn language? Have you ever noticed this? It's an extraordinary thing. When children are born, they have to learn language sometime. We don't ship them off to an expert with textbooks and language lessons. We just park them in a family somewhere. And how they ever figure out the difference between real language and... I will never know. But they do. Because they are wired by God for communication and we are wired by God 
to learn that communication in the context of the family of our origin. And we learn it so precisely that it's not just the big building blocks of grammar and vocab that we pick up. You can listen to a two-year-old child utter one sentence. And in one sentence, you could tell if this child was born in Auckland or Adelaide or London or New York. All you have to do is hear them say one sentence and you can hear the mark of the family of origin as they not only speak the language of their family of origin, but they do it with that musical lilt that we call accent so precisely that in one sentence you can hear where this kid was born. And God knew that that would be true. See, healthcare professionals who try to help people untangle the knots uh, in their lives can see the fingerprints of parental influence in every area of a counsellee's life, in every area. Anybody who's been trained in this will, will do a genome. They'll want to, they want to hear your family stories because they they'll never be able to help you really unpick your life if we don't understand your family of origin. In fact, see, healthcare professionals who work with people to try to rebuild their lives are able to see the impact of parents on uh, who you marry, on why you marry, on if you marry, on how you do marriage, on your career choice, on the struggles you have with intimacy, the way you relate to people in general, how you parent, your identity and your self-esteem. They can see the fingerprints of parents on things like alcoholism, drug abuse, on sexual abuse, on obesity and anorexia, on frigidity or promiscuity. They can see it on the tendency to homicidal rage or impotent passivity. You can see the fingerprints of parents at every stage of life. And God knew that that would be true. God knew that every human being would face the challenge of paradoxical parents, unless your parents were perfect. And even then, it seems as if even perfect parents can have a somewhat damaging influence on children just because the wiring of the child didn't match the wiring of the parent. And they felt there was something missing in that relationship, even though that parent could never have done a better job than the one they did. It's a stunning thing when you talk to, to a group of children that grew up in the same family and hear their stories of the experience of their family of origin. Some kids have flourished and others have struggled. It's not because there's any... It, the parents can only be who they are. And yet, it's the wiring of the child that's been the issue. My mum and dad weren't perfect for me. And because God knew that, because God knew your parents would have a profound influence in your life, he has something to say to you about it to help you manage. God wants to say something to every child to give them the skills that they're going to need in order to manage the parental paradox well. Be interested now if you care. Would you like to know what God actually has to say? God knew that your parents would only have a, not only have a profound influence on you, but that you would probably not perceive it as well as you will need to. Because our tendency is to polarize our view of our parents. We don't tend to have a balanced view of our parents. Our tendency is to either deify our parents, we see no wrong, or we tend to vilify our parents, we see no right. And God knew that that wasn't going to be helpful either. But you know, here's an even more Im Im impressive and compelling thing. 
God knew that your parents would not be the only paradoxical people you would ever bump into in life. God knew that everywhere you went in life, you would be bumping into people that are a blessing to you and throw challenges your way. And if you couldn't learn the skill to manage paradoxical people in your own home, it wouldn't matter where we sent you in life, you would be bumping your face against walls and stubbing your toe on bricks. You would be in constant trouble no matter where you went in life. Or did you think that you would marry the only human being in life who would never present you with any kind of emotional or behavioral challenge? No, perfectly adjust themselves ideally to the way you view life. Or did you think you would go to work for a boss who would lie awake at night seeking to structure the workplace in a way that would never present you with any challenges? Or did you think that you would hire people who as they come to work for you would adjust every facet of their lives to mystically match the way you perceive things? Or did you think you would move into a neighborhood where all the neighbors and their values would be suddenly adjusted so that you would never have to deal with a crisis? Or did you think you would come to a church where pastor would extraordinarily and marvelously understand every unspoken need you've ever had, phone you without being requested, adjust every message to match exactly the way you view the Bible? Or did you think you would go to a home group where the home group leader would marvelously lead the discussion every evening in a way that perfectly matches the way you would like to see it done. What kind of world do you think you live in? God knew that if you couldn't handle paradoxes, you couldn't succeed anywhere we sent you in life. But if you could learn to handle paradoxical behavior in your own home, there wouldn't be a place on the earth that you couldn't succeed. Who would like to hear what God has to say about how to handle the paradox of your own parents. Who, who's interested? There's four, four people, eight, twelve. I can, we can always do another message. I've got other stuff. I mean, I mean, if this is boring, we can go somewhere else. If you don't need, I, I mean, we could do one on evolution creation if you like. All right, there's enough. There's enough. There's a majority. There's a majority. We'll do this one. Here's what God has to say to every human being to help you develop the necessary skills to cope well with the paradox that you encounter in your own parents. You, you might want to write this down. It could be really, you could, you could maybe carry this with you and it would be really, really helpful. Well, although, <laughs> as I say, Marvin may even already know it by heart. May, may even know it by, by heart. You know, that, that'd be good. Then you wouldn't have to learn it at all. You just have to do the thing right. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Here it comes. God's word to every human being to handle the paradoxical behavior of your own parents. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. You shall honor your father and your mother. Yeah, oh, great. Yeah, I thought that would go over really well. <laughs> Good on you, Al. Just, you, <laughs> just what I thought. Just when I thought that I'd come to church, someone might say something important. Out he comes with that drivel. Only your father and your mother. Only your father and your... Yeah. Typical Christian rhubarb. Only your father. You know, that's exactly what you expect from the Bible. You know, don't rock the boat. Maintain the status quo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typical Bible rubbish. 
Honor your father. If my mother and father knew all the mistakes they'd made, they'd be slashing their wrists. That's what they'd be doing. If I was honest with my mother and father about all the ways they hurt me, they couldn't sleep at night. Yeah. Yeah, that's typical. You know why God's always sticking up for old folks? Yeah, it's just because he's the ancient of days, that's all. Just sticking up for his own kind, that's all. Yeah, yeah. Typical Bible rubbish. You know what, guy? And poor old Ham, you know why he ended up cursed? Because he noticed something. He noticed his dad was in the nutty. It's his dad who took his clothes off. He didn't strip the dude. And what does God expect for poor old Ham to do? Play Sergeant Schultz. I see nothing. I see nothing. Yeah, typical Bible. Yeah, yeah. Pretend your mum and dad are perfect. Honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. See, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say, honor your father and your mother so they can sleep well at night. The Bible doesn't say, honor your father and your mother so they can feel good about their parenting skills. The Bible says, honor your father and your mother that it may be well with you. God knows you're going to need help because parents aren't perfect. And the secret is not to do a Sergeant Schultz. I say nothing. Pretend that they're perfect. That's not what honoring your father and your mother is about. The core of this commandment goes to the word honor, the word kabed. And it simply means this, to let something be as significant as it really is. To let something have the weight that it really has. But it is not a word that is just used in the positive sense, just see all the good stuff. This is a word which is used both positively and negatively. It is a commandment to let the good stuff be as good as it really is. And at that point, learn a skill. See, here's one of the challenges in life. We have to learn to let the good stuff be as heavy as it is and stop blowing it off. Our tendency is to do that when we don't like something. We just blow off the good stuff. We, we act as if there is no good stuff there. Yeah, I know. So what if my dad went to work for 40 years and put a roof over our heads and food on the table? So what? He's supposed to do that. Now, don't you dare do that. If you're ever going to honor a father or a mother... You have to see the good stuff and you've got to let it be as big and as significant and as important as it really is. And with that comes a skill, it's called gratitude. Because if you don't learn it here with your mum and dad, one day you'll be married and you won't see it there either. People will be sacrificing for you and laying down their lives and serving you. You'll blow that off and the day will come. They'll walk out that door. They won't put up that for another month. You never learn the skill of gratitude. It'll happen in every church you go to. Oh, you can find problems in any church. But don't you dare just blow off all the good stuff. People are here serving and caring. and they, You dare, dare you let that count for nothing. Don't you dare. You learn gratitude. Learn to see the good stuff. Learn to perceive it. The, the job you have, oh, I hate the job I've got. Listen, you stop there. You start to see the good stuff that is there and you let it be as good as it really is and you learn that skill of gratitude and you'll find good everywhere you go if you've learned how to do that. But you see, it doesn't stop there. There is another side to the thing and that is that there are negatives. Yeah, there are. 
Parents are imperfect. I, I have not been a perfect father. I've not been a perfect husband. I don't know how to be. I'm a broken, sinful man who loves God. And my kids are not asked by God to do a Sergeant Schultz. I see nothing. They're asked to see it as disappointing, as unhelpful as it really is. They're asked to see the negatives, the things that have not been helpful, the things that have been hurtful and disappointing and heartbreaking, and let them be as bad as they really are, and learn the skill of forgiveness. Because if you cannot learn to see the negative and see it as unhelpful as it really is and teach your heart, learn from Jesus how to forgive, you'll fail everywhere you go in life because there'll always be stuff to get bitter about. There'll always be stuff to be angry and upset about. And if you cannot learn to draw the negatives to the cross and let people be defective and still love them and still treat them with respect and still engage with them and still... It won't matter where you go in life, you'll fail. You've got to learn these two skills. Let the good be as good as it is and learn to to have the skill of thanksgiving and the skill of gratitude. Let the bad be as bad as it is and let uh, learn the skill of genuine genuine forgiveness not sweeping it under the carpet but really to forgive to release them to god and say that hurt but into your hands it's okay now for some of you sitting here what i just said isn't that hard to do because your mum and dad have been pretty good people and i'm i'm in that group but there'll be some sitting in this room for what i just said is not that easy to do because you encountered some significant hurt in the family of origin in which you've grown up. For some, you have lived with a father or a mother who may have been absent or who abandoned you. Um, I experienced some of that with my dad because I think any man who went through the First or Second World War was damaged by the event and often found it difficult to relate as they did before. My mother said when she went to pick up my father from the train station in 1945 and he was released to come home, and marry and the war ended while he was at home she said i could didn't even recognize him i didn't recognize him she'd known my dad for many years she didn't recognize him when she picked him up from the station i think my dad was different before the war than he was after i lived with a dad in some ways who was somewhat emotionally absent sometimes you've been raised with a parent who's been neglectful things that really need to be taken care of were just never but they were just ignored you may have grown up with a flawed parent and whenever i think of of say that word i think of my own wife a girl who grew up in a home where her mother contracted cancer when she was four by the time she was eight years old she'd gone through four years of emotional upheaval and crisis her mother died when she was eight her father became a functioning alcoholic as a result and when she was 12 years of age he married another woman to bring her into the home and give her a female in the house and he married a woman with mental health issues and during her teenage years, my, my, my wife grew up with a very, very strange stepmother, a very strange person. She grew up with flawed parents. And to this day, I see the, I see the, the marks on her heart. Um, stuff that we could argue about and stuff that could have damaged our relationship is simply the consequence of raising a child with a flawed parent. Um, 
being eight years old and responsible for a six-year-old brother because your dad's gone to work and now it's your responsibility at eight years of age to get a six-year-old child off to school and make sure that's not responsibility. Sometimes I feel like Helen is overly uh, bossy. Um, it's, it's the first child raised in a flawed household. And I've learned to, to love her for it. It's, it's not that she's overly bossy. She's, she's been raised with this concern. Is my, have, my, she's eight years, my dad got his car keys. Can my dad get in from the garage now that he's drunk? That's a child. She never have to deal with that stuff. And it marks her to this day. Sometimes people have grown up in a home where a parent has been abusive and every now and then you'll find someone whose parent was downright evil. It's not common, but it happens. Well, what are you going to say to them about that, Al? How, how are we going to, you know, you've grown up with an abusive or even evil parent. How are we going to find the good stuff in there? Well, there is something that you better find in there. And that is this. No matter how defective or how evil a parent was, the only reason you are alive and have a life that Jesus can redeem forever and ever is because of that evil person. And you need to let that be significant. Listen to what Dallas Willard has to say to those who struggle with finding anything good in their family of origin. He says this, If you do not deeply appreciate the weight of the fact that your parents gave you the gift of life, you are condemned to despising yourself for you are the life they created. If you never press through your disrespect or your rejection of your parents and who they are, there will be a similar disrespect for yourself. A long and healthy existence rooted deep in the soul requires that at some level we be grateful to God for who they are, not necessarily for all the things they have done. And if that is you, if you have struggled because of the deep damaging inadequacies of a parental background, then maybe today God has come to you to say this, I want you to begin to value them for the gift of life that they gave you because I have come to your life and maybe this, the worst, you've survived the worst that life can ever throw at you. You have passed the test. You're beyond those challenges. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I, I will carry you from here to eternity. And the only reason eternity is open to you is because you're alive and I have a life I can work with. It may be today to just let the gift of life be so significant to you that it can lift you from resentment, disappointment, judgment and disrespect to a brand new respect for yourself and a sense for the life that God has given you. Now, I want to say, thank God for the fact I'd never had to do that amount of work. Helen's had to do some, and I watched her do it. One of the th most impressive things I've ever seen is to watch her press through the disrespect or the pain she had from the hands of her father to winning his heart and seeing him come to Christ two weeks before he died. If it had been left to me, that would never have happened. I would never have visited him or seen him again because I didn't like what he'd done to my girl. I want to say, however, that for me, that's not been such a big deal. If you'd asked me uh, years ago, Al, do you, you know, have any resentments or bitterness against your mum and dad? I said, of course not. What I had done, however, is I would have to say I, I didn't like my dad. My mum was nearly perfect. 
very reserved, but my mum's are like that, you know. She was pretty much perfect. But dad wasn't perfect. Dad was a wonderful man, but he he wasn't perfect. And and there were things about my dad that I had, had observed in my childhood that made me not be very close to him. Maybe two things that stood out most to me was, firstly, my father never processed discipline, never. I mean, disciplined me, but never processed it. And if I disappointed my father, the way you knew that you'd hurt my dad was he wouldn't talk to you. He'd, just, he'd be totally silent. And the first time I ever saw this at work was when I was four years of age. Now, the fact that I can even tell you about it demonstrates that it marked me. Dad made a kite. I, I remember it. We were out in the backyard. We had sticks and string and brown paper, and Dad built me a kite. And then Dad and I went over the park, and we flew it together, and it was wonderful. Dad was a teacher. Off he went to work. And as a four-year-old, I had a thought, I'll I'll have a go at flying the kite myself. So over the park I went. And in my memory, I remember the sky was black and the wind was roaring through the trees. This is not a time for anyone to be trying to fly a kite. I tried to fly the kite. It it, it just got wrecked. And when my dad came home and saw the ruined kite and the tangle of string, this sad look came over his face. He never said a word. He never fixed the kite. And we never flew it again. Just withdrew. Now here's a stunning thing. The first time that I ever shared that story with my own church, one of my staff came up to me and said, Al, do you realize that you do that to us? I said, what? He said, we, you never yell at us. You, you don't get big and you know, stomp all over people. We know we've upset you because you won't talk to us. You go quiet and you withdraw. I said, I do not. <laughs> You're sacked. <clears throat> I didn't do that. How extraordinary. In my 50s, I'm repeating behavior I first was marked by in my babyhood. And I had never processed it myself. And here I am repeating it as a minister leading a staff. Because that's how people are. That's why this commandment is so significant. You can ruin relationships all your life if you want to. Or you can learn the skills necessary to succeed everywhere you go. That was one issue with my dad. The other issue that was that my father didn't go silent. He'd blow up in my face. And the worst thrashing I ever got from my father was when I was 14 years old. I got a few buildings from my dad. But the worst one I ever got was when I was 14 years old. What triggered that, Al? I purchased a bicycle tube. When my father heard that I had purchased a bicycle tube, rather than repairing the puncture in the other one, he tore a stick off a tree and gave me the worst thrashing of my life. And the consequence of that, of that explosion was that in my heart, I said to myself, you are nuts. I wasn't smoking the tube, Dad. <laughs> it's not Marjoini, Dad. It's a bicycle tube I bought with my own money from my own paper round. Get a grip, Dad. And it made me separate myself. I took a step. I thought, I will never again know what will press your buttons. I will never know. 
Because who could have anticipated the worst thrashing? I mean, I've done things like I shot Russell Simpson in the backside and the police came. That wasn't good. And I burned the park down and 11 fire trucks had to come. That wasn't good. I never got a belting for that. But I buy a bicycle tube and my dad nearly rips my arms and legs off. What's that about? I thought, who could ever know you? But, and so I, I wouldn't have said as a, as a 30-year-old, I'm walking around with unresolved you know, anger or upset. My parents... But one day I was pastoring, uh, when I was pastoring at Mount Evelyn, I had a woman come in for counselling and, and it seemed as we were talking that she had nothing good to say about her family. And I asked her a question, have you ever done a treasure hunt on your dad? Have you ever sat and really looked for the good stuff? No, she said, I haven't done that. So together we got out, we began to write down every good thing she could mention. And as the more we talked, the bigger the list got. And it changed her view. Now when she left... I realized I had never done that with my own father. And doing that process with her had provoked me that there's a lot of stuff I had blown off. You see, something as simple as this. I've been married for 44 years. Just feels like 43, bro. Do you know one of the reasons I'm married for 44 years? Because my father loved my mother. I grew up in a home where my father loved my mother. And I thought that would be everybody's experience, but apparently it's not. Apparently not every man treats his wife like my father treated my mum. When we'd be sitting at the table and dad would start getting this goofy look on his face and he'd start saying, isn't she just the prettiest little thing, kids? Isn't she just the most beautiful little woman? And we're sitting there going... <laughs> and dad would suddenly get up and he'd run around the table and he'd be kissing mum on the back and think and it marked my heart my father loved my mother I was 14 years old because before I heard them have an argument and then it was over my brother my big sister's boyfriend um I wish father had won it because that argument because he ended up damaging my sister my father loved me. It marked my heart. One of the reasons I could never imagine divorce. Murder? <laughs> yep, we could get that on the agenda. But never because I grew up in a home where my heart was marked by my father. My father loved God. He taught us to read the Bible. He took us to church. I could hear my father grumbling in his little voice in, in the dark as he prayed at night. My father was a lover of God. He honored God. He could get up any morning and he'd be sitting at the table doing his daily bread. Um, he had one job his whole life. He was so totally reliable. My father carried responsibility like a man. I, I began to write all this stuff down that afternoon and I realized I'd blown it all off. I'd never let that be as heavy as it really was. And as I wrote that stuff out, I fell in love with my father. In fact, that day I sat down, I wrote him a letter. And on it I said, dear dad, I've never you know, shared with you the, the privileges I've had grown up in our family and I began to write it all out and the very last thing I said was this dad whatever stability I have in me I owe that to you now I sent that off to my father it totally changed my heart mum says that when the letter arrived he'd been in a bad mood for three days and he opened the letter it totally changed his heart he was going to go down the street and buy a picture frame and frame it because I I wrote it on church letterhead paper. It was like a certificate from God, you know. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and she said, you, you can't do that, Rog, because um, this is, there's a personal letter. But here's the funny thing. 
Do you know my father never mentioned that letter to me? <laughs> he never came to me and said, Al, I got your letter. It was lovely. Thank you so much. He, he never said a word. But it didn't make an ounce of difference because I had let the good stuff be as good as it really was and I'd let it be as heavy as it was and I'd acknowledge that it totally changed my heart. So from that day, my father became my greatest hero in life. Listen, when I get to heaven, I'm not, I'm, I, I could go look for the Apostle Paul and say, what the heck did you mean in 1 Corinthians 7 about let the, let the women be silent in the church? Did you realize how much trouble that caused you? Know? We've been, people, have, people have been arguing over that for years. You want to, did you realize? That is not, I, will, I want to find my dad and I want to put my arms around him and say, Dad, I made it and I made it because of you. You're my hero, Dad. I'm so grateful it changed my heart and my life. It may be that some of you could benefit from doing a treasure hunt. Sit down with a bit of paper and ask the Holy Spirit to help you see the good stuff. You've maybe minimized or haven't let it be as heavy as it really is. Now, let me give you a little help on the negative side because there are two points I can give you as we close that could really help you deal with some of the negatives. My wife said to me once, Al, you're not going to have your dad forever. You ought to get him to take you back home to his hometown and get him to tell you all his stories. So we went back home to Malden, uh, the gold mining town of Malden near Castlemaine in Victoria. And for a whole day, Dad, we drove around. Dad had showed us the school and the Methodist church where he pumped the organ at the age of four and where he went to school. And here's where one of his friends drowned in a dam. And here's the little house where mum raised nine children, virtually as a single mother. His father would disappear for a year over to Kalgoorlie and come home and another child would be conceived. He'd be off again. Thirteen years he, he when my dad was 13 years old my father his father died his mother raised these nine children virtually alone he explained to me how he used to have a cow run and where he used to herd the cows as a child and he'd get paid a penny a week for that and he'd take it home and he'd hand it over to his mum like all the kids did because together they worked as a team and every penny they earned went into mum's hand and mum got every single one of those kids a tertiary education every one of them they either ended up as school teachers or as people working for the air force or the postmasters or whatever every one of them had responsible jobs and every one of them succeeded in life and it was that day that i understood that belting i got over the bicycle tube see i grew up in the 60s where a kid could have a paper round and spend all his money on himself because money was around you know my dad grew up in a time where nine children surviving with a virtually a single mum meant every penny being carefully managed for the family good. And one day a man who's, who grew up in that environment watched his son just go and buy a new tube instead of fixing the old one and I pressed a fear button in his heart and he blew up in my face. He acted as a paradoxical parent. Now, I didn't have to sit down and say, Dad, the Spirit of the Lord has revealed to me the depths of your woundedness and how sin has overflowed into every part of your life, causing you to abuse me as a little and innocent child. But today, God has expanded my capacity to say to you, I forgive you all your sins and iniquities with which you have ever offended me. I, I didn't have to do that kind of rubbish. I just had to realize my dad lived a different life to me and sometimes that 
kind of didn't work out well on my side of the equation. All I had to do was say, Dad, if I'd ever walked five miles in your shoes, I have no idea what kind of man I would be. Dad, it's okay. It's okay. You ever realise your parents have actually had a life before you arrived? (laughs) They actually, they've been the product of years of work and challenge and pain and all the stuff that you'll never hear about. By the grace of God, they did the best they knew how. And that was my dad. One more thing that really helped me. And that is if you just understood a little better your parents' wiring, you could understand a little better some of the ways that things didn't work out well. And I never really got my father's wiring. I never really understood it until my brother shared a story with me. My brother said, Al, I was talking to dad the other day about the Second World War. And we're having this really great conversation. And he got to a point in the story where he told me about how one of his friends had been shot in the head. And when he got to that point in the story, he just stopped talking. He never said another word. He said, after a few minutes, I realized he wasn't going to say anymore. So I got up and I left the room. He said, I came back through the room 20 minutes later and dad was sitting in exactly the same place. He hadn't moved. He was as silent as a mouse and tears were just streaming down his face. Now, when I heard that, I realized that's my dad's wiring. When something grieves my father, mostly he just goes quietly inside And he talks to God. He doesn't tend to to complain and rant and rave about himself. He just goes quiet. Now, when I was four years old and the kite got broken, that wasn't helpful for me. But my father could only ever be who he is. He can't be everything. He can only be something. I heard that story and I thought, it's okay. Dad, it's okay. You could only be who you were. And who you were... That was something. That was something. There's so much good in my life because of who you were. My mother loved you. I'll never forget those last words. Standing, I took my own father's funeral. I heard my mother stand at the side of my father's grave and say, I had a good man. I had a good man. Good night, sweetheart. I'll see you in the morning. Something they must have said to each other every night of their married life. I'll see you in the morning. Because of Jesus there will be a morning for my father and there'll be a morning for my mother and there'll be a morning for me. And I'm grateful. I'm so grateful. I don't have to pretend. Do a Sergeant Schultz. I see nothing. See it for what it is. See how unhelpful it was and learn to release people because they can only ever be who they are. And if you can learn these two skills, you could never attend a church where you wouldn't be a blessing. Because it doesn't matter what isn't there, you'd see what is. If you could just learn to let the good stuff be as good as it really is and learn gratitude and let the negative stuff be as bad as it is, but learn the skill of release and forgiveness, no matter where they send you in life, you'll succeed. And the grace of God will go with you and be part of your journey in life. And the grace of God will keep you in every circumstance. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray over my friends here today. I pray over these precious congregations. And I ask in the name of Jesus to let the word of life come to their varied circumstances today and bring health and strength and grace. You may have come to church today and 
as you hear what I've unpacked for you, it, it, it's import, it was important for you. Now, I know no one will be sitting here saying that was a waste of time, but for some of you, this was, this was really important that you heard this. And all I want you to do is just acknowledge it to God. Say to God, as you raise your hand, I'm going to pray over you. I just want you to say to God, I heard it, Lord. I heard it. Raise your hand, I'm going to pray over you. Father, you see these hands raised. Only you know the story at the back of that raised hand. And I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would be mixed with this word and help them today to do treasure hunts and to take things to the cross to let there be real forgiveness and genuine gratitude. I pray that it will be a life change to them. Satan, listen to me. Whatever torment you have sought to perpetuate in their lives, as I bring this word to this congregation, the word of the Lord rebukes you. God himself rebukes you. You are to separate yourself from their emotions, from their thoughts and from their future. For Christ is everything to them. I pray release and healing and restoration in Jesus' name. Amen. Put your hand down. Just one last thing I want to say. You may have never asked Jesus deliberately to come into your paradoxical life, forgive you, restore you, and help you be the biggest blessing you may be. This is what Christianity is about. It's a journey with a gracious God who is willing to forgive, willing to restore, and desirous that everyone would be saved. But you've got to ask. You need to to engage. You can't just sit. He's looking for you to respond. It may well be that you've sat in church before. It may be that this is your first time. But something in your heart is soft. And something in your heart says, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Help me. Lord, change me if that's you today just please bow your heads and let give people a, a bit of space just lift your hand right where you are because if that's you if you've never asked good man i'm going to pray with you in just a minute is there another just one willing to say lord i've never asked but today i will today i will good on you mate that's great is there anyone else who today would want to say yeah that's me that's me i've never asked but i'm going to ask today god come into my life give you one moment Just lift your hand and I'm going to pray right for you. Okay, guys, I want you to take your hand, put it on your heart. Put it right here. Just put your hand right here. And I'm going to teach you how to pray. Now, we'll all do it together so you don't feel self-conscious. As a whole congregation, you could pray this prayer every day of your life. But today for you two guys, put your hand on your heart and say these words to God. Heavenly Father, I need you. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Jesus, come in. Become the strength of my life. And I will follow you all the days of my life. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been such a privilege to share with you. God loves you. He is for you. He is not against you. And his word was sent not to be an impossible burden but to bring life and may the word of God today bring life for you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.
I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day.